Hello and welcome back to the Paddle On podcast. This week we have a very special guest joining us. Her name is Madeline Fonline and she is from the Save the Boundary Waters organization. I am your host Sydney and I am so excited to be starting off with the third episode. No words can express how thankful and thrilled to have Maddie here today. Maddie works for a very special organization called Save the Boundary Waters, which focuses on protecting the boundary waters from sulfide ore mining. She is here today to talk about the organization and some of the potential risk factors of the boundary waters. Hi, my name is Maddie Fonline. I am the Northern Regional Organizer for the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters. I've been working for the campaign for a couple months here, but I've been volunteering for the past five years or so. Prior to this, I've been to the Boundary Waters a ton of different times. I've worked as a wilderness guide for both the Northern Lakes Girl Scout Canoe Base as well as Ely Outfitting Company. And I've probably been on at least over 30 trips by now, both guided and personal. So I've been out there quite a few times in both the winter and in the summer. That's amazing. (laughs) I I wish. You can do it too, Sydney. (laughs) It's getting there. It's getting there. So you've been working with Save the Boundary Waters for how many months now? I started in September as a full-time staffer, but previously I've been a volunteer for about the past three years. Wow, that's really cool. Why did you feel so inclined to join? I've been out there tons of times. I've seen the beauty. I know this place super well. And more importantly, the people I've guided, I've seen the impact it's had on them. And so I think it would just be a shame if something were to happen to this place so that new generations, future people, if they're not able to visit it, you know, I think that's just such a shame and something that can't happen. Everybody deserves to go to this place. And so I had the capability and the capacity to help out. So I started off in what way I could to speak up for this place. And I just so happened to get lucky to have a job working full time to protect the Boundary Waters. That's amazing. It's incredible that what your campaign has done for the Boundary Waters. And I'm so happy that you guys feel passionately about this. How has working with this campaign affected the way you feel about the Boundary Waters? I think since joining on full-time at the campaign, I get to see a lot of the nitty-gritty background details that go on, not only in wilderness advocacy and environmental issues, but also just in the way this wilderness is run. You know, it's managed by a bunch of different governmental organizations from the U.S. Forest Service, which is a part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to the Bureau of Land Management, which is under the Department of the Interior, And that's not even taking into account the different state entities. There's a lot that goes into running this wilderness on a governmental level. So I think that's been the biggest kind of reframe I've experienced while looking at the Boundary Waters is it's not just one entity that oversees this place. It's multiple. And it makes it really interesting to think like, oh, okay, so... The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and Wilderness Areas are a part of the National Park Service System is located on the Superior National Forest, which is a part of the U.S. Forest Service. There's just so many different entities that go into it. So it really makes me appreciate the manpower that goes into just keeping this place protected as a federally protected area. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds very intense. (laughs) A lot of a lot of work goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just generally, what is a Save the Boundary Waters campaign? 
The Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters was formed in about 2012, I believe, um, and its parent organization is Northeastern Minnesotans for Wilderness. So NMW got together because they saw a looming threat for um, a proposed copper ore sulfide mine right on the border of the BWCAW, which is still in the watershed. And so they formed a campaign to help formally fight and protect the Boundary Waters. Since 2012, we've gone through quite a bit of different periods, but from our very creation, our drive has been permanent protection for the BWCAW um, for all time. So not just for the next couple of years, we're trying to get it protected for everybody. So every generation that comes after us can also experience this beautiful place. Yeah. Why is this issue so important to eliminate? So copper ore sulfide mining is a very destructive extractive practice and so when you pull these precious metals out of the ground they're connected to something called sulfide when you combine sulfide air and water you can create this stuff um, that is akin to battery acid Um, and of course this is a very water-rich environment in which all of these lakes are connected so you pollute one lake you can pollute a lot of other lakes downstream that is why this is so important to eliminate is because this mine does have the potential to damage a lot of really beloved areas, including and where it would enter at Fall Lake, go up into Basswood, down Basswood Falls, both upper and lower, into Crooked, over to Lac LaCroix, and it even has the potential to travel into Voyagers National Park. And of course, along this whole route, it also touches the Quetico Provincial Park, So we really have a bunch of different areas that would be impacted by this one mine. The other reason to eliminate this now, while there isn't a mine in production, is because we don't want any risk of this place getting ruined. If we prevent this one mine, ideally we'll be able to prevent and protect this boundary waters from any other type of sulfide copper mining. Which is not to say we are against uh, any other forms of mine. Iron mining is a very important and industrious part of the region up here. We're just against this mine in this place. Yeah. How toxic is this pollution to the ecosystem like the fish and the animals? The introduction of this could put a lot of sulfate and other kind of nasty stuff in the water. And when you think about how sensitive these ecosystems here in Minnesota are, really any elevation of pollution within this watershed could dramatically impact the fish. And then in turn, the other animals that eat the fish, drink from the water, eat anything else out of these lakes. And so you can kind of end up with this bioaccumulation within the food chain, which is something we definitely want to avoid Because even though this path of pollution would follow like a pretty specific set of lakes, so our GIS mapping has showed us, it does have the potential to impact all sorts of different animals across the boundary waters. And it would be very destructive, you know, animals, plants, everything is pretty sensitive. So you change the environment too much and they're definitely going to have a lot of impact and a lot of issues. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I've learned. I spent a good two and a half hours, three hours, learning about the different ecosystems of the boundary waters. And if one little thing gets off, it's going to impact the entire thing. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy. How has the organization helped slow the spread of the mines? So we've been fighting this since pretty early on. You know, two thousand nine. I think they first kind of started thinking about this, and then two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. We really fully committed a lot of our resources to it. So we've been able to prevent this 
for the past 10 years or so, which has been really good. If there wasn't an opposition like us, surely this mine would have been approved and kind of its beginning stages would have already been in the process as we're speaking now. But because we've provided opposition over the past many years, we've prevented a lot of harm or the potential for harm to come for quite some time. And we've really been putting up a strong fight against this and have gotten a lot of different opportunities for public input, as well as done a lot of work on both the state and federal levels to bring this issue to everybody's mind nationally. So it's not just a Minnesota issue. This is really becoming a national issue since this is America's most beloved wilderness area. It's insane. My, We talked about in my first episode about how there's over a thousand lakes in this area and it's just crazy to think that one little thing can basically destroy it. It makes no sense, and it's really frustrating to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will mining impact the ability to enter the boundary waters? Will it be more difficult since everything will be contaminated or have some sort of pollution in it? So the analogy I really like to use uh, for this acid mine drainage, the runoff that comes from the tailings from this mine, is, you know, you take Kool-Aid powder, you add it to your mix or your drink mix, now you have Kool-Aid water. Just like Kool-Aid water, it's not very easy to separate that Kool-Aid back out. In fact, it's very, very difficult. And that's what would potentially happen here in the Boundary Waters. Years, and I'm talking millennia after this mine is done, we've speculated that, you know, up to 500 years or longer, this mine could impact this area. So this isn't a short-term issue. This is one that's going to last for a very long time if this mine is allowed to occur and when it pollutes. Even after the mine is closed and all of the potential economic impact that comes from the addition of this mine, the already established tourism economy up here would greatly suffer from it because a big chunk of the wilderness will now be polluted, and it's a very special and very popular part of the wilderness. You know, Lac La Croix, Crooked Lake, tons and tons and tons of visitors go up there. So, yeah, this mine would have much longer impact than it would be in operation. Yeah. Are there ways we can stop this pollution, or has it basically already started? Yeah, so the pollution from the Twin Metals Minnesota project has not started, at least not in any notable way. What they've been doing is test mining or test drilling to kind of see and check on the contents of uh, the minerals thereafter. So we haven't seen any extreme pollution from this, but with the production of a mine, there comes a lot of opportunity for that potential pollution, both in acid mine drainage in the watershed, but also through invasive species that can attach themselves to the machinery that they'd have to bring up here to build those mines. There would obviously be noise pollution on Birch Lake, uh, where a lot of residents live, and there is the potential for air pollution from all of the refugee dust that would then be flying around when they pull and separate the minerals from And kind of their big base and then set the tailings on the surface and also light pollution just from the operation of the mine. Yeah. How is water pollution, how is that happening currently right now? Yeah. um, So there are some parts where after a rainstorm or some runoff might bring some of that 
those tailings into the watershed. And so the pollution right now isn't significant enough that it's an issue. However, Birch Lake has already been listed as an impaired watershed, which is where this mine is being proposed because of previous activities that have raised the pH levels in the water. Um, so there already is trace amounts of pollution that have impacted the fishing and other animals within the region. So it's already kind of a critically... You know, that watershed is already in a critical moment where there is some pollution already there, not from the Twin Metals Minnesota project. That's so sad. How do we prevent this increase in water pollution? Stop the mine. (laughs) I think the best way to protect this place is to make sure that not only the Twin Metals Minnesota project is stopped, um, but also that we protect this boundary waters from any other project that could happen. This whole watershed is very, very vast, as I'm sure you're aware since you've been up there. This is all interconnected, and so the best way we can kind of protect the rest of the boundary waters is to get the headwaters fully protected. And those headwaters are outside of the BWCAW and currently have no federal protection on them. Wow, that's crazy. How do we prevent air pollution now? Again, Stop the mine. <laughs> the, mm. What they're proposing for their tailings is they're going to do a dry stacking method if this mine is allowed to be created. And dry stacking is just where you take the precious metals out of the ground, separate it from the sulfide and the other you know materials they can't use. They pull all the water out of it and then they just stack it on the surface. So dry stacking. And that, of course, can cause a lot of dust and other stuff when there's wind because it's just a bunch of tailings stacked on the surface. There's nothing to contain it or keep it down. So the best way to, again, or prevent this pollution is to just prevent this mine. Are there other elements or things that are going to affect the boundary waters in a negative way besides the mines? I guess right now, kind of one of the biggest things is the boundary waters is so popular. People love coming up here, and for good reason, because this is a fantastic wilderness. But since the coronavirus uh, hit us, we've seen a huge increase in visitors. In 2020, we saw a 60% increase of visitors from 2019, which was a lot. And a lot of people started coming up here who haven't traditionally gone out into the woods, which again, is so fantastic to see. The unfortunate part is they're not quite familiar with all of the leave no trace ethics and regulations that this wilderness area has. So we've seen a lot of impact and damage in the boundary waters, especially around our campsites. So in response to that, the Forest Service announced that they're going to reduce the amount of uh, entry permits for the 2022 season, kind of as a way to continue to protect the boundary waters to keep it clean and pristine. That way, future generations can still use it because we don't want to love this place to death in the 21st century. We want people to use it for the next many, many, many years. So that's kind of one of the other bigger threats to this wilderness is just everybody's love for it. And so what I say to that is, you know, the more education we can get out there about leave no trace specifically in the boundary waters, the better, because hopefully that'll lead to less impact on this land. I totally understand that. We went this summer and I was like, we went to like a very secluded part and it was, we didn't see anybody. But then we came to Bald Eagle Lake and we saw a couple people and they were like leaving like garbage in the water. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're literally just destroying everything. Yeah, I I think it's been interesting because over the past uh, six years that I've been guiding up here, it's I every year it's it seems to get a little bit 
messier, you know, more trash is left, more yeah. impact is done on the campsites, more trees get cut down, more birch bark gets ripped off of trees, you know, so I think that right now we're in a critical moment because people love this place and people love getting up here, but they just aren't quite sure how to travel through it ethically. Yeah. In what ways can we keep them clean? Kind of the best way to keep it clean is yourself or anybody else that goes out. What I always do is I bring an extra trash bag and I just kind of keep it in my pack. So when I'm going on a portage trail or if I roll up to a campsite, whether I'm staying there for the night or just stopping there real quickly with my group, we usually pick up trash, grab anything we see, make sure the campsite looks nice and clean. That's just a really great way to kind of help out. Now, the Boundary Waters has a rich history over the past hundred years. Uh, so there is a lot of trash and other stuff out there left from uh, before it became an official wilderness area. And I still have packed out a lot of glass jars and a lot of other stuff left from before this area was a wilderness. So the best way for people physically out there to protect it, to just kind of help clean it up. And the other thing folks can do when traveling and getting up here and going to any wilderness area, national park, public land is to just be familiar with leave no trace ethics and just kind of how to properly and safely travel through these areas are there things that people don't tell you that are important so like obviously leave no trace but like are there other like clues that you need to know before entering so the boundary waters since it's a wilderness area has some extra protections placed on it and so every visitor that goes in gets an entry permit. And on the back of it, there are 14 rules that you have to abide by when going into the wilderness. And the ones that I see people don't recognize the most often uh, is that there are no cans, aluminum cans allowed in the Boundary Waters. So, you know, people like to bring their drinks. People like to bring like canned tuna fish and other canned items for their meals, not knowing that that isn't allowed uh, in the Boundary Waters. And so that's one big tip I have for folks is if you are planning on bringing anything that does come in a can, either switch it over to reusables first or make sure you're grabbing just like plastic bag packages. The other thing that people miss quite often is you're not allowed to burn anything in the wilderness. Um, so make sure, of course, if you pack it in, you pack it back out. And kind of the third tip that not a lot of people talk about is going to the bathroom in the Boundary Waters is quite an experience, and I'm sure you can speak to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's always kind of nerve-wracking to try to find the latrine, but what I recommend if you are going number one and you don't have to use the latrine, go far, far, far off the trails. Just go back into the woods somewhere and find a nice open place. You know, you don't want to be going number one near your campsite. You know, after a while, you can really tell which tree is the pea tree. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it just kind of has that odor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, our campsite this year, it was probably a quarter mile to the latrine. I was like, oh my gosh. And then I was like, <laughs> I was afraid to go back there by myself because we saw a bear like a day before. And I'm like, mm, no. So I made my friend go with me. I was like, that's, see, buddy system. <laughs> buddy system is great. Yeah. Oh, that's my other tip for you. There are bears up here, as you know, and, you know, bears like to get in food packs. Bears love, I mean, love peanut butter. And so if you're coming up here, ask your outfitter, ask somebody to teach you how to throw a bear hang. Um, bear hangs are awesome and they're pretty bear proof because a bear can't just like levitate uh, to grab that food pack. Otherwise, bring a nice bear barrel that can withstand up to 250 pounds of force exerted on it because that's about as much as these bears weigh. 
Obviously, there are other factors that impact the boundary waters, such as wildfires and garbage. But are there other ways we can prevent these things from happening? In terms of wildfires, those are tough. Kind of the biggest thing you can do during wildfire season, if you do come up here, is just adhere to fire regulations. You know, if you're in a fire ban, be really, really careful with your stove. Make sure you're not having a campfire. Just like be sure you're fire aware. In terms of garbage and other stuff, just kind of read up, talk to your outfitters, talk to your camps, talk to anybody in town really kind of about the how-to and what's new uh, in the Boundary Waters just to kind of know what issues are happening so that you can be sure to avoid doing them. The worst thing is to have a ranger pull up on you and say, hey, you can't have that here, but you didn't know that. That's always really embarrassing. So just kind of know you're in the loop or make sure you're in the loop. That really prevents a lot of issues out here. How is Save the Boundary Waters working to help spread awareness for the Boundary Waters? So we do a lot on federal levels, on state levels, and in other cases. We've just launched a couple of programs as well to try to get more people up here and involved in the Boundary Waters. So we're really hoping that in the coming year, we can get out some national campaigns that advertise this place, you know, as America's premier wilderness and hopefully provide some insights to folks so that they can get up here. And part of my job has been really getting more folks involved, especially since I've had quite a bit of experience out there as a guide before my time here at SAVE. It's just important to get people out here and to get them to love this place, but to do it respectfully and ethically. That so makes so much sense. How has this campaign affected the mine industry? Has it taken away the possibility of mines getting closer to the boundary waters, or has it just not changed at all? I think because our campaign has fought so fervently for the protection of the boundary waters, definitely our fight is kind of elevated on that national level, like Bears Ears and the Alaska Wildlife Refuge have been. I think without our campaign, assuredly, there would be a mine potentially in production. But we are not taking on the whole, the entirety of the copper ore sulfide mining industry. We're just taking on this one mine in this one place, along with any other mines that try to crop up up here. We as a campaign understand that copper, nickel, and cobalt, the three precious minerals or metals that could come from this mine are crucial for the United States' green economy development, you know, electronics, electric cars, really all this stuff that is happening on the federal level right now. We're going to need those precious minerals. But this mine here would produce less than 1% of the United States' needs for these three precious metals, whereas other partners or other countries who the United States has really good trade relations with, such as Australia, they have a mine that produces these three metals that could supply the United States' demands for the next 250 years. So when we're looking at that, you know, the obvious choice is to do it somewhere where it's arid and dry, the risk for pollution is way less than it is up here in this very water-rich environment. And that mine is going to produce a lot more material than this mine will. It's crazy that one mine can produce so little but affects so much. It... How has climate change affected the way the boundary waters have been seen? Has it water increased or been taken away? This summer was a really good example of how climate change and other global impacts are really affecting this place. 
So I'll start off, Boundary Waters, 1.1 million acres of pristine wilderness, which is next to the Quetico Provincial Park, which is 3.3 million acres of pristine wilderness, which is also next to Voyagers National Park, which has even more wilderness. So the Boreal Forest is a massive carbon sink, so it has the potential to sequester a lot of carbon, which is really good. Now what we're seeing and what we saw this summer was next to no precipitation. Uh, This was crazy for me usually every week when I would go out and guide we would get at least one or two rainstorms this summer I think I had one storm that I was out guiding for and it was the storm that initiated the delta fire as well as a couple other fires around this area because it was so hot and dry we experienced a lot of wildfires and most of those were initiated by what little rainstorms we did have through lightning strikes. And so we saw some pretty major impacts from kind of the warming climate up here this summer. Because there was also so little precipitation, the water levels were really low. And so that made it difficult as a guide to get my crews through the boundary waters because some areas it was just unpassable. You'd have to get out of your canoe and walk along shore or there was one section where we were in waist deep mud because the lake had receded so far and there was no way to get from the portage head to the water without wading through a ton of mud. So those are some of the impacts we've already been seeing up here. And you know, you also find all sorts of random stuff, trash that wasn't brought in by visitors, just trash that has floated through the atmosphere and somehow landed in this area. Balloons, kind of other stuff from the sky that ends up in this area. Wow. When we were up there, a giant storm came through and I was like shocked because this was when fires had gotten really bad and it started raining, but it was warm. It I was it was not cold at all, and the lake rose like a degree. It was so hot, and I was like, "How is this happening?" It didn't make sense. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, and then we saw a lightning strike, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, is there going to be another fire?" I was so like nervous because I didn't want something else to happen. I, And I think that's the reality a lot of campers are facing out there, especially this summer. You know, one, there was so many people that wanted to visit and so much of the Boundary Waters was closed that people were getting pushed out like they couldn't find any campsites. And also, whenever those storms did happen, people would be really nervous, like, oh my gosh, is my campsite about to light on fire because of this lightning storm? It was it was quite an interesting summer from that (laughs) side, and I'm glad you got to experience it. Our outfitter actually closed a week before we were supposed to go in, and I was just crushed because I've been wanting to go on this trip for two years now, and we got the phone call two days before we were supposed to leave that the outfitter was open again and we could go, and I was like Yay. overjoyed. I was so excited, but then it was That's like, oh, awesome. but then it was the oh crap, I have to pack everything in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's always how it goes, but I'm excited you were able to go because... And I'll tell you this quick story. So I was working at Ely Outfitting Company this summer, and I had a gentleman that had called me multiple days in a row. uh, And he was like, is the Boundary Waters open? My trip's on, I think, the 5th. And I was like, nope, no word. We'll let you know. And so he kept calling. He's like, I'm on my way to the airport. Did it open up? And, you know, like he just kept calling every time. It was like, no, but we'll see. 
this guy got here and the boundary waters reopened the day he was supposed to go in and i oh. called him and i was just like oh my gosh you're not gonna believe this <laughs> oh. you looked out my man and he was so excited like he took a chance and it paid off and he was just a rare case in getting lucky not as many people did so i'm also very glad to hear that you were able to get lucky (laughs) yeah it was crazy because we had a group of eight of us and this was the only week we could all go so we were like oh my gosh just please hold out just we're like so close and then it happened and we were like oh my we're gonna do it We're, we're there and it was just i'm so happy that we gotta go and I didn't mind the fact that we had to use a stove. I thought I was going to hate it more, but it was okay. I think stoves, I used to be like a campfire cooker. Like yeah. I would only use a campfire. But this summer after using stoves for most of it, it was like, wow, things cook so fast. And the exactly. pots aren't all gross afterwards. So, so now I'm a camp stove believer. <laughs> so finally, a couple more questions. If mm-hmm. the listeners want to join the Save the Boundary Waters campaign, can they? Oh, yes. We are always looking for volunteers or for ways people can get involved. You know, this is a public organization, and the best way to save this place is to get as many people in our fight as possible. And so the best way people can do that is they can head to our website, savetheboundarywaters.org, scroll in our various menu bars, find volunteer or ways to get involved, Then they can send in a quick form to us and one of our organizers will reach out to them and kind of get them up to speed. And the best part about this, because we've switched to such a virtual world, if you do want to volunteer, you can do it virtually. We have all sorts of virtual needs, especially in this upcoming year. There's plenty of ways to stay involved. And another way, and this is what I did, I served as an ambassador. So if you're not in Minnesota, or even if you are in Minnesota, but you kind of want to take on a leadership role within our volunteer team, you can work as an ambassador where you can organize your own team of volunteers in your region to do various Save the Boundary Waters related events or tabling projects or other virtual work we might have. So that's one way people can get involved. Of course, always just subscribing to our emails and kind of staying informed is a great way to keep in touch with us if you don't have a lot of time to get involved at this moment or if you just kind of want to see what's going on with the campaign. My final question, it's more a personal one, but why are the Boundary Waters so special to you? I first came to the Boundary Waters when I was 15 and that trip was life changing. I grew up in Colorado originally, so not a lot of water out there. And then I came up here and just really experienced something I never had before in my life. You know, what it feels like to portage, what it feels like to find success and self-growth and find self-confident out here. It's tough to do that, especially for a lot of girls and women who don't often get to step out of those stereotypes and gender roles that you have in regular society. This is just such an awesome place. And as I keep coming back, I find I have more and more and more experiences out here. Not all of them are perfect, but all of them leave such a lasting memory in my mind. And now that I've been guiding for quite some time, I just wouldn't give this place up for the world. Just it's so amazing to be out there guiding a group of other girls or any people really and to see how this wilderness also impacts them and helps develop them into courageous people who are just so passionate and so excited to get out and see these things 
it's such a special place unlike anywhere else I've been. And it's such an inclusive place too. In terms of wildernesses, this is such an easy one to go travel through. You don't have to have mountaineering experience or hiking experience or really much wilderness experience to come out here. You just need people to guide you in the right direction and to help you out to learn the basics and then you're ready to go. And I can't think of anywhere else in the world that is quite like the Boundary Waters. So it's really special to me. <laughs> so yeah. much so that I've dedicated a lot of a lot of years of my life to its protection as well as just getting other people out here so they can see the beauty as well. That's it's so touching. I I can't thank you enough for doing this with me today. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode today. Thank you again so much, Maddie. I really appreciated what you've done for the Boundary Waters, and I cannot wait to go back out there, especially with some of the tips you've given us today. We'll see you next episode.